The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. And all these simply fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for the gift of salvation. Uh, thank you for the truth of the gospel for all people. Um, God, we pray that you will just speak to us, encourage us this morning, and uh, just help us to worship you better from, uh, from your word. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Randall. I'm the lead pastor of Grace City, and so grateful to have you here this morning. Um, now, as I'm getting started here, you know, we've been in the park for a little while now, since last October, but I have an announcement to share with you this morning. Um, this past week, we were able to walk through uh, UCHS, University City High School, where we used to meet, um, and it was amazing. So we were able to see some of the staff that we became friends with over the years that we were there, and we were walking through uh sharing about just this this season of, okay, when are we going to be able to meet back uh, in indoor facility. And so we started talking with the high school. We've been doing some planning and they were so excited to have us back. They were so excited to, to, to be able to, to welcome us. And uh, I'm telling you, I, it was like a wind in my sails uh, to be able to talk with them. And uh, just the conversations we were able to have, because one of them was with the, one of the lead custodians. He was talking about how uh, he missed having us. He said there was such a warmth when you were here, and it was like family. So um, I'm happy to share that we will be back at University City High School August 15th. August 15th, we'll be back. Um, and here's the cool part. If you've been with us for a while, there was a lot of construction happening over the years. Construction is over. It is done. Yeah. So no more construction. No more like coming into the courtyard and there's like a big bulldozer there, you know, any of that stuff. Um, we'll be able to meet. And uh, they were they were so happy because they said, you know, we got a whole new like preschool area that hasn't been touched yet. And so it's just an awesome space for the kids to be in. Uh, but we'll be sharing about that more. But with that move... We're going to be needing your help, and so we're going to be ramping some things back up as far as kids' ministry and all of that, and so as you know, it takes uh, a lot of us to work together to be able to make that happen, uh, but we're looking forward to being back at University City High School on August 15th, so that means there's only two more weeks here in the park. That's kind of crazy, huh? Two more weeks, and then we'll be back there uh, very soon. 
Now, uh, with that news, that's exciting. Um, one of the other things that we've been doing is uh, we've been going through the book of Acts. And so I believe that that's really exciting, too, because I think that's been informative for our church as we think about what the church is really about. Um, I don't believe that this season in the park is something that's been wasted, right? But it's, it's a reminder of why we're here, why we're here. As I was talking with uh, one of the custodians there, the, the, my friend Omar, he said, he said, you remember when you gave me that Bible for my son? I said, yeah. He said, you know, we're starting to read that. We're starting to read that together. It reminded me of why we're here. It's to share the good news of Jesus. And what you see all through the book of Acts is that there are people who've been radically changed by the gospel and now are going and sharing that with people that are outside the box of what they would have normally shared the good news with. Why? Because God was doing something in them. It was transforming them. It was making them new. And so as we've been studying, we went through... um, Acts 15, uh, last week in Josiah, did an exceptional job in sharing the power of the gospel, that it wasn't based on what we did, but based on what's been done in Jesus. It is grace that saves us. That's the radical message of the gospel. But as we think about that, and we're going to be going through verses 12 through 21 today, you can know that. I can know about grace. I can know about living in the, the power of the gospel. But, but what does it mean to live by this new standard? That's what we're going to talk about today. Living by a new standard. I can know the new standard, but am I living by it? And so my question this morning is this. Do you believe that grace is God's standard for your acceptance? Do you believe that grace is God's standard for your acceptance? In his book, Discipline of Grace, author Jerry Bridges gives a compelling illustration of how many of us live day to day. He says, consider two radically different days in your life. The first one is a good day spiritually for you. You get up promptly when your alarm goes off and have a refreshing and profitable quiet time as you read your Bible and pray. Your plans for the day generally fall into place and you somehow sense the presence of God is with you. To top it off, you unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is truly searching. As you talk with a person, you silently pray to the Holy Spirit to help you and to also work in your friend's heart. Now, the second day is just the opposite. You don't uh, wake up, At the first ring of your alarm, instead, you shut it off and go back to sleep. When you finally wake, uh, it's too late for a quiet time. You hurriedly gulp down some breakfast, rush out the door to your activities. Uh, You feel guilty about oversleeping and missing your quiet time. And things just generally go wrong all day. You become more and more irritable as the day wears on. And you certainly don't sense God's presence with you. That evening, however... You quite, expectedly, quite unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone that you know and sharing with them about receiving Christ. Now, he asked, would you enter those two 
witnessing opportunities with a different degree of confidence. Would you be less confident on that bad day than you were on the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God would bless you or work through you in the midst of a rather bad spiritual day? He says, is such thinking justified? Does God work that way? The answer to both questions is no, because God's blessing does not depend on your performance. But here's the reality. Many of us walk around with a low-level anxiety, guilt, shame on a daily basis, don't we? And in many ways, we put this pressure on ourselves. We receive it from others. Or we believe that God is placing that on our shoulders. Do you believe that God accepts you by grace, not by your performance? See, this is a completely different standard of life. It's the reason why many of us walk around with our heads down and not up. And I confess many times, I can fall into that trap as well. So what does it look like to live by God's standard of grace? Well, in our text today, we're looking at Acts 15, 21 through, or 12 through 21. And, and again, uh, last week, Josiah shared about uh, how God, from this passage, is, is confronting the Jewish Christians because they weren't allowing the, the, the Gentile Christians to live in the freedom of the gospel. They were putting and heaping standards on them that weren't from God. And in that, they said, you need to follow the Jewish customs like circumcision and the Mosaic law. And basically saying that the work of Jesus wasn't enough. See, the Pharisees were ready to debate this, but Peter stepped in and proclaims a grace faith-based, ritual-free gospel. One that invites in the outsiders and puts them on the same playing field as the Jewish believers who've been there a lot longer than them. And this is not only something that happens back then, but it also happens today, like I explained earlier. Commentator Tony Morita said, even today we see people disrupting the idea that salvation is by grace alone. Many adhere sometimes without even realizing it to a Jesus plus something else gospel. But if we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. Gospel math works like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And when you start to receive that, you start to live in the freedom of God's grace. And it changes you. So how does it work itself out in everyday life? Well, we can, uh, how can we look at a new standard of grace? Well, in today's text, we see three aspects of to living by grace. And it's by these three things. Number one, we'll see it in the text, the reality of grace. Number two, the reinforcement of grace. And number three, the restraint of grace. The reality of grace, the reinforcement of grace, and the restraint of grace. 
And so first, the reality of grace. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, what's happening here? Well, first, we need to go back and look at what happened before this. In verse 11, it says this, as as Peter speaking, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Right, so he's talking about salvation, God's acceptance being based on grace. And, and, And Peter gives this speech and the congregation fell silent. At this point, there were no more arguments. There were no more debates. Peter just shared what God had done. Period. God had removed barriers and moved powerfully among the Gentiles and said this issue of salvation and how you're saved is settled by God himself through the work of Jesus. Salvation comes in no other name but Jesus. And you remember back in verse 10, what Peter said, he says this, he says, if you don't believe that, why do you test God? Why are you testing God? Right? This is a God statement that's been made. This wasn't a matter of opinion. This wasn't a matter of what God had had, had said, or this was a matter of what God had said and done. And there's no argument against that. The, the, the message of Christianity is wrapped all up in Jesus. And it reminded the people that the gospel is built on what God has done, not what we can do for God. Not what we can do. And so what is the reality of grace? When, when we understand that that low-level guilt, that low-level shame, that low-level like thing that just... Depression of, of that feeling of pressure that we place on ourselves has been taken care of on the cross. That you can lift your head and walk in the freedom of Jesus. When you know that. And it wasn't just for you, it was for others too. When you know that's taken care of, it should leave us speechless, right? On many levels, it was shocking then, and it's shocking now. And it counters everything that we naturally think about ourselves and about God. In the movie, uh, Captain Phillips came out in 2013, but it was, it was based on the real-life events of the Maersk, Alabama hijacking, in which this merchant mariner, Richard Phillips, uh, was taken hostage by Somali pirates in 2009. And in one of the final scenes, it reenacts the Navy SEAL operation to rescue Phillips. After he's rescued, he's treated by this Navy medical staff. And in the scene there at the end, there's a medic that's treating Phillips and tries to calm him down. See, he's been all beat up, got injuries all over him, blood all over. It's just a really gruesome scene. The trauma that he'd been through. And just sitting there, and, and, and she asks him, how you doing? He says, okay. He says, you don't look okay. 
and she starts to just work on him and and and, and fix him up and heal him. And it was like he, she's like, D- "Can you describe what happened?" He, nothing, nothing. No words could come out of his mouth. And she's just bandaging him up, fixing him up. And in many ways, he was just in shock that that it was true that he'd been rescued, that he'd been saved out of this situation that seemed like there was no hope. And even more powerful than that, when you think about your salvation, when you think about what Jesus has done for you, when you think about how he's met you in some of the darkest places, you thought there's no way that I would ever get out of that. It should leave us speechless that he would save us and meet us there. See, when we know and we see and we hear this gospel that's proclaimed, and we hear that it's for all people, and it could even be for somebody like me, the radical nature of it should leave us speechless. Martin Luther once said, he says, for almost 20 years, and I still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. And still, I cannot get into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Surrender myself completely to sheer grace. It should leave us speechless. How is it possible? How could this gospel be true? It's good news. But secondly, this, we see that it's, it's not just for the insiders, the people that are the insiders, but for the outsiders. And this is the reality of the gospel. Next it says, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now remember, through them, who was Paul? Paul was somebody who persecuted the church. Paul was somebody who killed people. God worked through that guy to reach the outsiders. And he declared signs and wonders of what God had done through them among the Gentiles. Here's the shocking part, but it's the reality. God wasn't only among the Jewish people. He was among the Gentiles too. This was outside of the box that they'd place God in. This didn't fit neatly into their theology. Hold on, I know God works through us because we're the chosen people, but he's actually working among them? That's, that's, that seems outside of my realm of how I believe in God. Could God work in the dark places that you don't think he could work in? Yes. If he's worked in my heart and he continues to, you better believe he can work in some of the darkest places. But God is doing it. This is the reality of grace, that he's working among the Gentiles, and that was shocking. That was shocking. Next, it's the reality, but there's this reinforcement, and and let's see this, the reinforcement of grace, because again, it's hard to believe, right? So James jumps in. After, After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, who's just another name for for Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, 
And, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. I love this. So first, who is James? Well, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. James is a big deal because he is the writer of the book of James. So there's multiple James, but this is specifically the James that was the brother of Jesus. So if you need backup, you need reinforcement for what you just said, I think James is a good person to come in there and say, hey, I got your back. Because now he steps in and he says, okay, now you guys need to listen to me. What does he do to reinforce the grace that was just preached to them, that was just declared to them as they were arguing about religious rules? Well, he points to how God showed himself in their day. This already was settled, but also in the Old Testament. So first, it says that he visited the Gentiles. And so what is he talking about here? He's talking about something we talked about a few chapters ago in, in, in uh, Acts 10 and 11. Remember the prejudice that Peter had? towards outsiders? Remember how God dealt with him specifically and, and said you were in sin? And, and, and you need to, 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 to change your perspective or your theology of how I work? He met him there. And so you remember God already settled this back in Acts 10 and 11, but now they're arguing again. He says, okay, I'm going to settle it again. And so he says, God already visited the Gentiles once. This already happened. But then he, he goes back in verse 14. It says, to take a people for his name. Now, this word people, if you're, if you're looking at your, your Bible, you could just underline that because this is a really important word right here because uh, one commentator, Daryl Bach, says that this phrase is, a surpri is surprising because it's an application that was a common idiom for just Jewish people. James, now, as he's speaking, again, the leader of the church, brother of Jesus, as he's speaking, is now saying that it wasn't just the Jewish people, but James is applying it to the Gentiles, and that they can be included in God's people without having to follow the Jewish customs. So this is radical, but it's a reinforcement of what's already been said. And so back, he goes back into the Old Testament, okay, and so uh, God already declared that he would already do this. If you look back in Amos 9, 11 through 12, that's what's quoted here from James. But now as James is looking at what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, as he's looking that, as that he's interpreting it through the lens of looking at Jesus. He said, you want to know how this is possible? Look, Jesus made this possible. Jesus did this. He made this possible. Because you see what it says here? He says, um, I will return I will rebuild, I will rebuild, I will restore it. Verse 17, seek the Lord, my name, from of old. This was God's plan all the way from the very beginning. Yes, he worked powerfully through Israel. But remember why Israel was chosen, because it was the weakest of the, all the nations. And God was going to show his power through them. What? To be a shining light to the rest of the world. And so we see that God of old, from of old. It, here's the thing. 
The standard of grace may seem shockingly new to them in this moment or to us today, but it's being reinforced that it's not new to God. Remember, holy God, unholy people, how does that come together? It's only if God meets us in grace. And if you're like, okay, well, what is grace? Karma says you get what you deserve. Grace says you get what you don't deserve. Do you see the difference? I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't figure it out. Karma gives you what you deserve. Grace gives you what you don't deserve. And God has always interacted with humanity in this way. We didn't earn it. We, we didn't figure it out. It wasn't because we were lovely, but because of his love meeting us in this place. Lastly, the restraint of grace. Look at verses 19 through 21. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble. So James is still speaking. Not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So he doesn't want to make their life harder. He doesn't want to heap commands and, and, and pressure on them, right? Verse 20, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So how does this finish? Well, first we see James's heart in verse 19. He says, we should not trouble those, uh, trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And so what he knows is this. They're starting from like ground zero. Right, they're, they're just getting to know who God is. Like, we've known about who God is for a long time. But now there's this, these new believers who don't know anything about God, and this is brand new to them. They've just been saved by Jesus, and they need discipleship. They need help. We're not trying to make life harder for them. We're just trying to train them up and help them to understand it. So what he does is he, he, he establishes that, yes, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. But like Josiah pointed out last week, it doesn't stay alone. There's actual fruit that starts to come from your life. There's actual transformation that starts to come. There's a godly restraint that starts to come in your life where you, you're a new person, right? And so it, it, it changes you. And so James is showing that grace has this element of a growth in holiness that needs to happen. That happens not because you can do it, but because God is doing that in you. And so you're becoming a new person. You're being transformed. And he's also doing this. Well, I'll just, let me, let me read this. So um, Brian Chappell says this. He says, if our teaching of grace causes us to make light of sin or to slight the requirements of the Savior, then we have not really understood either the monstrosity of our sin or the greatness of the heart that forgives it. Do you get that? So it's like, okay, Sin is deadly. It's not our friend, right? It, it, it's not our friend. We're not cool with it, right? Romans 6 talks about, he says, do, do not keep on sinning so that grace may increase, right? That's, that's not the goal here. That, that There's confusion that can happen sometimes when we think about grace. We think, well, that just subtracts any growth, any holiness, any of those things. I can just go do what I want. But no, true grace meets us 
it, and really it helps us to understand that there's a monstrosity, monstrosity to our sin. And so we need to tell people who are like our, our new believers that, yes, this is, there, there's a growth and holiness that needs to happen here. But secondly, James wants to write these things to these new Gentile Christians to help them understand the history of the Jewish people so that they are sensitive to their new brothers and sisters. See, this is a a restraint to build unity amongst the fellow believers. Just because they're saved now doesn't mean everything's like perfect and they understand each other really well. No, there's going to take some time. There's going to take some understanding. There's going to take some history lessons to understand what they've been through, the Jewish people have been through, so that they can be sensitive to their new brothers and sisters. And so he's telling them, he's like, okay, like they have to understand these things. And so we need to write a letter to them to understand this and kind of lay this out. See, this is a restraint to build unity amongst believers. And these four requirements help bring up these these ritual requirements that they were they were that, that was common in the Jewish faith to help make fellowship possible among Jews and Gentiles. Now, one of the things that I've seen recently, and and, I, and we love watching it every every four years, is is the Olympics, right? And so recently, me and my family, we've been like really excited. We're like, okay, we're gonna watch like the opening ceremonies, and we're gonna watch all the different events happen. But here's the thing. I love watching the opening ceremonies because seeing the different nations, the different people groups, all coming together in one place reminds me of heaven. Doesn't it remind you of heaven? When you start to think about all of the different ethnicities and people groups and all of that coming together in one place and you're saying, wow, this is amazing. But you know the thing about the Olympics that that needed to happen this year for it to happen is there had to be some restraints. Some of them were like, I don't, we don't understand that because we're not, we don't live in different parts of the world, but there's like, there's restraints. You see people wearing masks and, you know, you see people getting vaccine and all that stuff. Like there's different things that are like, you have to accomplish these things for this to actually happen. And what he's saying here is, hey, there's some restraints, there's some things that you guys need to understand so that this, this church can actually work. Did they get it perfectly? No. That's why we got the different letters in the, the Bible to the church in Galatia, Romans, all these places, because they didn't understand each other very well, and so he had to help lay this out for them. But this is important. And I think it's really important for us, for those of us living in America, as American Christians today, See, I believe one of the things that seeped into our lives as Christians is this pride that says, well, all these things are just my rights. I can do this. I can do that because it's my right. But here's the thing. We've grown up with it. And we believe that it's okay as long as it's okay with even the laws of the land or my own standards. But we've always got to ask, what does God say? What does God say? What does God really say? Not through my American lens, not through what I think and I've grown up with, but through a lens that is God-centered. Because as I look at the different nations and peoples that are coming together, even for the Olympics, they're all coming with different perspectives. But we need one unified perspective, and I'm telling you, the only way we can find that is God. 
Galatians 5, 13 through 15 <laughs> says this. He says, uh, this is Paul speaking. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom, right? Grace gives us freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He's speaking to a church. And I think as the church in America right now, we need to be very cautious. We need to be careful. We need to understand that we're saved by grace. And yes, we need to be thinking about, am I doing this out of my own flesh? Or am I asking the Spirit to guide me and help me? Because we need each other. Too many churches in America are splitting. Too much splitting at the seams. We're all divided. We need unity in the body of Christ. And what James is pleading for is unity in the body of Christ. Even if that meant for some of them to put down their rights, new Gentile Christians, hey, this is what it looks like. So that we can fellowship together, so that we can be together. It's not about me. It's about what God wants. And so, just some takeaway today as we think about this grace and, and how we can live out our acceptance. The first one is this. By believing the gospel overcomes our worst days and our best days. The gospel overcomes our worst days and our best days. Again, Jerry Bridges says, our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. You hear that? Your worst days, you need grace. Your best days, you need grace. And it's true. And so do we believe that? And do we live in that standard? That standard. Because if you don't, some days you'll be so puffed up with pride and feeling like you've got it all together that you'll just look down on other people because they don't have their life together. And that's not living by grace. But then other days you'll feel so down And you'll feel so low that you feel like you can't put your head up. And you don't feel like you're worth anything. And God says, yes, you are. You're my child. I love you. I care about you. Lift your head up because you're a child of God. I don't feel like it right now, but he's he's beyond your heart. He's beyond your heart. And so... Second is by remembering that God's word is solid and unchanging. By remembering that God's word is solid and unchanging. Remember what happens here? What does James lean on? He leans on this passage from Amos going all the way back there to what Amos was saying in Amos 9, 11, and 12. Why can he do that? Because God's word doesn't change. It's consistent throughout. It wasn't like a different plan here and then another plan here. No, it was the same thing going all the way back into the future. And so we need to remember that every day. Ephesians 6, 13 through 17 says, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How do you fight off those attacks of, of feeling that depression or that pride? You come back to the Word of God because it's consistent. And lastly, by displaying a new sensitivity to others and their needs. A new sensitivity to others and their needs. I want to tell you, this stuff is not natural. It's not natural. It's supernatural from God. God works these things out. But how does he do that? By understanding that there was one who gave up his rights for you and me. Timothy Keller says, if your fundamental is a, God, is a man dying on the cross for his enemies, if the very heart of your self-image and your religion is a man praying for his enemies as he died for them, sacrificing for them, loving them, if that sinks into your heart of hearts, it's going to produce the kind of life that the early Christians produced. How did the early Christians live like this? Because they believed that there was a man who died for his enemies because they believed that there was a man who prayed for his enemies. Who was that? The God-man, Jesus Christ. And that's where our faith is. And I start to see through that lens and I ask God for his grace to help me to display a new sensitivity to others and their needs, just like he's calling for right here as he thinks about these Gentiles who've been saved. He's helping them to understand, hey, there are people that are re reading Moses. They're reading the Old Covenant. They're, they're, they're trying to understand. And so you just got to be sensitive to that's what they're going through. That's what they're reading. And they don't understand some of this stuff. And so you, we're, we're trying to share the gospel with people. That's really important. It's that important. And so for today, as we think about the gospel for ourselves, I want to remind you of the depths at which God saved us from the depths from which he saved us from. It was so deep that even our best days couldn't save us. Why? Because in Ephesians 2, it says that we were dead in our transgressions and uh, dead in our sin and, and, and transgressions. We were dead. We were dead. It was hopeless. But it says also, but God rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jew, Gentile, unified through the perfect work of Jesus. Do you believe that's for you today? Could you live by that standard and saying that God loves me today by what he's done for me on the cross and live by that grace? I hope you do. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this word today. We thank you for how you speak to us and meet us. 
in this place where we could have never accomplished it. May we be just stunned again by the work of Jesus. May we be renewed in the power of the cross. And may we be empowered by the resurrection, that resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. And you say today, because we believe in Jesus, lives in us. Help us to believe today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.